This week on a lively experiment, a stunning rejection by Rhode Island's Attorney General of the proposed merger by the state's two largest hospital groups. And Alan Fung makes it official he's running for Congress. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us for this week's Reporters Roundtable, Bill Bartholomew, founder of the Bartholomew Town podcast, Providence Journal State House reporter Patrick Anderson, and WPRI Target 12 investigative reporter Steph Machado. Hello and welcome to this week's Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. It is great to have you with us. Attorney General Peter Nerona left no doubt on Thursday that he believes a merger between Lifespan and Care New England would lead to higher costs for patients and poor health care. He spelled it out in a 150-page rejection that now has the two financially troubled institutions trying to figure out what's next. Now, coincidentally, all three of you were working on this story yesterday, so that helps. Uh, Bill, let me begin with you. Uh, I'm not sure I had this on my bingo card for 2022. Um, give me your initial blush. As you, and you were at the press conference yesterday. Yeah, you know, a lot. some people are describing it as surprising. I don't see it as all that surprising. I think maybe it had a 50-50 shot just in terms of a layman's perspective. Look, this is about competition. And when you look at the specifics of what this integrated academic health care system would have been, you're talking about perhaps the greatest monopoly of health care in the country. So with that being the, I guess, underpin of the attorney general's decision, it's not all that surprising that this didn't make it through because, look, the, the antitrust element of this, the optical element of it, what it does to the independent hospitals, to the Yale New Haven systems, Westerly Hospital, it's just not an even playing field. At least that's what the attorney general found. Now, there's obviously people who totally disagree, the nurses union being one of them. I'm sure the institutions themselves, some even in elected offices. But uh, it seems like that for now, this is over. What struck me was the attorney general really savaged the, the hospitals and Brown for not doing their homework. He basically said, I'm looking for information. We asked for it, and it didn't come. Yeah, he basically said he was repeatedly asking what exactly is going to be the implementation plan to prevent all of the concerns that he had about higher prices, less competition, all of that. And he said he wasn't really getting answers from Lifespan and Care New England. And he, he basically made it sound like Brown wasn't really a part of it. Now, they were never a party to the actual transaction, but they were the academic institution that was going to be a partner in all of this. Um, and he didn't seem very impressed by their plan, and he was he did not mince any words when he rejected their application. Yeah, and listening to, to Nerona go through all of those things, it made me think that they had to know, they being Brown and Lifespan and Care New England, the executives, had to know at some point that this wasn't looking very good. The chances of this being approved weren't that great. So maybe I'm a little surprised now looking back that there weren't more rumblings of them taking action to do something to change that course. I mean, from his description of the meetings, he wasn't mincing words with them in private about what they weren't telling him. So that's maybe a little surprising that we, we didn't hear more efforts to try to save this. But then the other thing what, where this turns now is we, we heard in very good detail all the things that were wrong about this proposal. And now we have to hear about what 
would be good, what the potential positive outcome is going forward. And that's much more murky of whether Care New England can stand on its own, if it is purchased again by someone out of state, whether that is a good outcome. And then where does that leave lifespan? Are they big enough, strong enough to stay independent on their own. Well, and the federal money has has clouded a little bit of it. They've gotten that boost. Well, like the ARPA money, that's eventually going to run out. And it's not just the AG. The FTC was a real player here. So talk a little bit about the timing. So it's, he talked about, the, you know, that's a little bit of insider baseball. 40 minutes, get down here. Talk a little bit about what the attorney general said about why he announced it yesterday and what his concerns were making it public. Well, one, as you referenced, the FTC decision, which came something like 8 o'clock in the morning yesterday. But... Also, the attorney general, when you think back to the partner's decision and how he didn't get out in front of the public early enough that he was basically muzzled through the court system for being to be able to bring his perspective to a greater audience. So I think that that was largely his thinking from a logistics standpoint of like you say, hey, reporters get down to my office in 40 minutes. Because if they go to court and then oh, I can't comment on pending litigation, right? Correct. Yeah. And really the one-two punch of the attorney general rejecting it while the FTC simultaneously puts out that they are also going to oppose it and actually sue to block it seems fairly <laughs> de- daunting. Fairly <laughs> devastating. You know, even at the time we're taping this Friday morning Lifespan and Care New England actually have not said that they're <laughs> dropping the merger and that they won't appeal the AG's rejection, but it seems like the combination of those two very strong rejections from the AG and the FTC is they might be done. At the risk of trying to sound like Nostradamus, uh, I was talking to somebody after they announced this, and I was here when it went to Patrick Lynch. I think Jeff Pine may have even considered. They've been talking about this off and on for the last 30 years. And my question to them was, what makes the monopoly you got to get over being a monopoly. What makes this different from any other time? And it turns out it really didn't. I mean, that monopoly question, did they not see the hospitals have gone through this so many times before, as you said, compared to others, it was going to be 80%. And I don't know why they went through all this and thought, oh, we're just going to look the other way on the monopoly. I aspect. think what's different now is just the bigger picture nationally in the consolidation. The dire, the dire well, the consolidation and the consolidation of, of the hospital and healthcare industry. It's happening everywhere. All of these systems are merging. There are fewer of them, and they're bigger. And that's the the overriding trend, which makes the ones that are the small ones that are still around think we have to do this. If we don't do this, we're not going to we're not going to be able to stay in business. One interesting thing I'll note is that just on the pure political side is that the candidates for governor and the governor himself have basically stayed as far away from this as they they can. Not all of them, but most of them. And they are just kind of looking to see which way the wind blows before they stick their neck out. In fact, the governor didn't even, like, put out a statement... Like, you know, the Speaker of the Senate president just emailed out statements. You, ha- they- you would not think he had any, he, the, the he health department had any involvement. <laughs> yeah, all I heard about was asked. vaccination clinics today. That was all he put out on his, on his yeah, release. He put out a video about booster shots. Secretary <laughs> Gorbea did put out a statement that was basically opposed to the Attorney General's decision on this. One thing that's interesting about this is that we heard so much about the Brown University component of, of this operation, right? The academic healthcare system, the integration of that. And I asked Attorney General Narona, this rejection doesn't stop Brown University from pouring money into Rhode Island's healthcare system, right? Of course it doesn't. So the notion that this 
yes, we're still going to have two entities, large entities in the state, assuming they are fiscally sound, but Brown University can still develop their plan regardless of the outcome of this decision. They've got a big endowment. I'm not sure it's big enough to cover the healthcare system in Rhode Island, but, you know, point taken. The other thing is, now it opens up the question, if they are financially compromised, now we hear, would a private institution come in? And then there's all sorts of concerns from there. Is it too early to start thinking about what the next move is? Because you know the presidents have got to be thinking about that, right? Yeah, I don't think it's too soon at all. And I'm sure they've had, I, you know, they've had this exclusivity with each other, so they haven't been allowed to negotiate with other entities. But if they decide to drop that... Um, I don't think it's too soon at all for them to think about what happens next. I spoke to um, Brown President Christina Paxson last night, who said she's really worried about, okay, if this merger can't happen, then is this an out-of-state um, merger that's going to come in? Like, she's worried about what is the alternative. She did say Brown's going to participate no matter who. No matter what the merger is, did Brown's you give her Bill's gonna... suggestion about plowing a lot of Brown's money into that? Did that come <laughs> up during I the course didn't. of the conversation? I didn't, but. Yeah, I don't know. Will the, the partners thing, you know, now Mass General, will that be revived? Um, I don't, Yale from Connecticut? I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know who the players are. I'm sure the discussions are all already starting behind the scenes and probably have over, over what next. This is, isn't just going to go back to the way it's always been, I don't, I don't think, but I, it's, it's pretty early to know what the next move is going to be. Final point, refresh my memory, what blew up the partners deal? Was it Governor Raimondo? Did it just fall apart? Remember when partners was coming in from Massachusetts? Why, with CARE New England, why did that fall apart? You know, if I was being honest, I would say I don't really know exactly why. I don't really recall why perhaps you guys do. I, meaning yeah. why would, meaning can partners, can it, can it say, okay, for whatever reason, it's like a case being dismissed without prejudice. Now we come sure. back and let's do it all over again. Was there some fatal flaw, I guess, is what I'm asking. I'd have to go back and review that, um, but I do think that that specifically and in conjunction with other similar entities is exactly what the concern is right now. Um, certainly when you look at the perspective of the nurses union, UNAP, um, and their general counsel, Chris Kalishi, uh, that's exactly what they're concerned about and what that will do to potentially shifting healthcare options outside of the state. Okay, another week, another congressional candidate. Uh, and this is a big one. Alan Fung, of course, former mayor of Cranston and two-time candidate for governor, has decided to jump in. Um, Patrick, this changes the dynamic. A lot of people, and of course, Alan Fung waited until right after we had taped lively last week. We had a panelist say, I think uh -huh. he's going to jump in. And then, so this is almost a week old now. We didn't know a week ago. Does he immediately become the front runner, do you think? For the whole race, I wouldn't go that far. I, I think uh, you know he's he's the front runner for the GOP nomination, and I think it's really close. I think it's really going to be tight. Um, I mean, I've got I've started downloading spreadsheets and doing cross tabs <laughs> to try to from 2014 to 2018, and you know it it look when you look at the national picture facing Democrats, which is probably going to be very bad. And you look at uh, CD2, the demographics, the voter history there, and the fact that uh, Fung, as mayor of Cranston, has always gotten a, a boost in Cranston from being the mayor there. It gets him really close to being able to make up for the deficit that anyone with, a, with an R next to their name uh, in Rhode Island usually faces going into a of a federal election. So it looks really, you know, if you if you assume that it's, if you take Magaziner as the Democratic nominee just for argument's sake, it feels really close, like it could be a real nail-biter, at least going in. 
Yeah. Yeah, I agree with Patrick. I, you know, I certainly think Fung is is at this point the front runner for the GOP nomination. But it will be interesting to see if the other candidates pull him to the right during the primary, and then he has to center himself again in um, if he wins the nomination in the general. I will say the Democrats are taking him very seriously. Um, even the way you saw Seth Magaziner almost instantly put out a statement after Fung announced criticizing him and saying, you know, the first vote he'll take in Congress is, you know... Um, for majority leader. For the Yeah, exactly. Um, and, 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 you know, so usually you see statements like, I welcome this person into the race. You know, it was not... They are really going to try and continually point out his ties to the Republican Party, his ties to Trump. He wore a Trump hat one time, all of that. That's come back to hang <laughs> him. Ooh, noose. Yeah, it's a brick around his neck, right? Yeah, but I think that considering he was such a popular mayor of Cranston, there's a lot of votes in Cranston and CD2, that this race is going to be really interesting. And it's a more conservative district. Exactly. Think about the fact that Alan Fung wore a purple tie as often as he did in 2018 <laughs> when he was running. That was a signal. That was somebody probably in Washington, D.C. saying, look, we've got to paint you as some kind of centrist. His campaign materials now are this fuchsia and purple, a little bit of blue. You've What's got up a with blue the big wave there. What is that? One, it's a famous piece of art. I don't remember what it is, but it's kind of like <laughs> clip arty. So hopefully they update the wave itself. But look, Alan Fong faces an enormous challenge. He's going to have to face off against Jessica De La Cruz to a certain extent, Bob Lancia, um, and perhaps others in a Republican primary that's going to feature people who are hugely anti-mask, still pro-Trump, X number of other positions that are perhaps not even necessarily what Alan Fung either believes or knows will win on a statewide basis. And it's exactly what you said, Steph. Can he navigate that primary and then reposition himself in the general? Now, most people don't pay attention to the intricacies of politics, most people who vote. So they might say, oh, yeah, Alan Fung, he ran for governor once. Was he a Republican? Was he mm -hmm. Who is he? Wasn't he Mayor Cranston? Oh, yeah, he looks nice. Cool. I, I like what he said. And then he may be able to win those uninformed voters, frankly, um, it'll be interesting to see if the matchup is against Magazine, or that does seem like the marquee matchup in a way. But don't sleep on Joy Fox. I think that there could be some interesting uh, dynamics at play in a matchup between Fung and Fox that is a lot different than the Magazine or matchup. I just, oh, just briefly going back to about the GOP primary. I mean, that's a big question is will there be a, a really contested GOP primary? It's not certain. Uh, that Jessica drains Dale a lot of resources. Right, or is like I mean, remember the remember the the Republican primary for governor, um, the last one. I mean, it was brutal, and Fung did not enjoy that uh, that very much. Will Jessica De La Cruz be able to raise enough money and get that support from the right, from the right of the Republican Party, and does she want to do that to make that a really bloody and contentious primary? Because that would really change then the dynamic of whoever makes it through when they go to the general election. It sounds like you're election. looking forward to that. I see a little glint <laughs> oh, in your yeah, it's bloody okay. and they're going to bang each other and it'll be great. It's definitely, Can't come changed, soon it's definitely changed everything about just this fall's election coverage and, and everything because this is such a massive race we weren't expecting to have. That's yeah. right. I sat down with Senator Whitehouse last week and his major concern is a circular firing squad inside of the Democratic primary. You know, if you have... 65 different candidates ripping each other apart. Oh, he's too progressive. She's too moderate. She doesn't believe this. He believes that. That's damaging to the Democratic Party as a whole. And I think because of that circular firing squad, that gives Fung, maybe De La Cruz, and by the way, she told me last week that she's considering 
our old friend Patricia Morgan. Oh my goodness. Well, it's just quickly before we move on uh, to Governor McKee, um, the the national, how that's going to play, because Link Chafee ran into that problem against Sheldon Whitehouse, 65% approval rating, but people said, I just can't pull the trigger to, to give the Republican. You remember the Senate was in, in play back then. How much do you think the national plays into the local race, or does it all come down to local? It, it does play in a lot, more than it would in a, in a governor's race. But the question is how much in, in this year coming up, in, in a midterm, it's not a presidential year, and the climate facing the Democrats in Washington is bad. Um, and what is their messaging going to be? Are they going to be able to get Rhode Island Democrats to turn out uh, in a midterm? So it's, it's not, that's, the, that's the headwinds facing any GOP candidate. But this year might be the year they could do it. It might be a two-year. I mean, you could see a situation where a Republican got elected, was in two years, and then was bounced in two more years. That's a, a possibility, but it's, it's out there. All right. Governor McKee uh, finally is saying that he's going to announce coming up this next week. I don't know whether I, there was some chatter. Is he going to run? Is he not going to run? It seemed to throw like a pretty foregone conclusion. But the longer it went on, you kind of wondered, where's the announcement, right? Yeah, I mean, I just think that he didn't need to announce because he's the governor. He's, he's got on, us there every day. He's right? on TV every day yeah. or almost every day. He's doing COVID briefings. Um, he has the eye of the viewers. He doesn't have to get make a name for himself. The other candidates have to get most of Rhode Island to find out who they are, right? He doesn't have to do that. So he sort of had the luxury of being able to be up at the podium, being the governor, and not really having to be a candidate. But at some point, you have to jump in the race or it becomes... You know, why is he he's the only one not running yet? And it raises questions, as you just asked, is he actually going to run for election? So, yes. Maybe he was listening to the Lively Experiment last week and his mm. people said, let's go. That's got to be it, Jim. I think he probably wants to do an in-person event and and perhaps on those grounds, um, you know, waiting for the cold weather to be over, waiting for Omicron to go down. I, I know Brian Crandall asked if that was a reason that he was waiting, more so on the in, in the optics of, hey, we're in the middle of a COVID uptick and therefore maybe you shouldn't run for governor or something like that. I think it's that he wants the balloons and the confetti and maybe the band, the Cumberland High School band is going to come marching out <laughs> and the whole thing. And unlike all of his opponents who are doing these social media videos with the exception of Dr. Munoz, no one's done an in-person event. I think that may be a factor as well. And like you said, Steph, I mean, does he really need to be out in the public anymore? He's already there almost daily. Yeah, you, you just don't want to kick off a campaign when you're putting a mask order in place and the hospitalizations are going through the roof and deaths are going through the roof and you've got infections and and you're mired in infighting and resignations in your own administration and I mean there just hasn't been a lot of positive stuff happening politically for the McKee administration in the last four or five months. Mm. Um, so at least you're at least waiting for things to, if not turn positive, at least not be negative before you uh, jump into a campaign. I think that's part of the timing as, you know, as well as just the logistics of, uh, of not wanting to do it during the height of the pandemic. 
Steph, you had a story on uh, the Pro Providence is not in a rush to get a school superintendent. I know you cover Providence, and we'll also hopefully get to pot before the end of the uh, show because you've covered that a lot. I just wonder, uh, the, the message, I understand what the, the commissioner is saying, but she says, oh, we've got a 34% vaccination rate. You know, we're not worried about superintendent. Can they not walk and chew gum at the same time? Yeah, and I mean, I think the fact that they never posted the job so that people could even apply and, and be considered is what has frustrated a lot of parents and teachers and community members. Because if you remember when Harrison Peters was um, hired to be superintendent, right when the state takeover of the schools happened, there was a lot of grumbling that she was just privately picking, picking him. whoever it was going to be. She didn't release the names of the people she was interviewing. Normally, in normal times, you'd see people come before the school board. You'd see at least a couple finalists. Their resumes would be posted and all of that. So then once he had to was forced to resign, the question was, well, can, can we do something different this time around? People were saying, can we have a more open process? Can the community be part of it? And so far, that has not happened because they haven't even posted the job and done a search. And that's not to say that people are unhappy with Dr. Javier Montañez, who is the acting superintendent, but he was also selected by the commissioner to fill that role in what was supposed to be a temporary basis until a search was done. And this is a, just a hugely important school district to the state. It's the largest one, and people want to have a say in who's going to lead it. Does he have an interest in the job full-time, Dr. Montañez? I have asked him more times than I can count, and he has not said. I, have, I can't imagine why he wouldn't apply for it if it gets posted, but um, I don't know that. And... I think what what I heard at this community meeting that I attended the other night was they said he is welcome to apply like he is a viable candidate. We are not saying let's get rid of Dr. Montagnier. They just want to see other people be considered and have it be an open uh, sort of fair playing field. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's it's about engagement with the community at this point. And I think that there seems to be a barrier for process. And I've heard from community members as well. I'm sure you've all gotten these press releases from different community groups or groups of teachers, so on and so forth, that are saying, hey, look, you know, we're going to start to organize on this in a, in a grassroots level and, and start to get uh, make more noise about this issue. And I think that the commissioner and, and so on and so forth would be wise to get out in front of this, post the job, make a decision, get some parental and community involvement, and, and get this over with. Like you said, why, why not? You can walk and chew gum oh, yeah, at the I same mean, time. To, What's the it's deal? not all about the booster clinics. Uh, just quickly, because I want to get a couple things before we leave. What are you hearing up at the halls of the Statehouse about legalization of marijuana? We've been talking about this for a couple of years, and it was the thing was, well, how are you going to regulate it? That was the big deal. From the people I talked to up there, they say they're close, but we've kind of heard that before, right? Oh, we've heard that a lot <laughs> before. We've been hearing that for almost a year. I, as far as I can tell, it's in the same exact place that it's been for months. Since the, a commission since the versus, right? Well, who, had, who gets to have control over who slides a permit to sell marijuana across the table to someone to, to a business. That is still the question. That, that's what they have said, that we, we've basically sorted out most of the disagreements except that who controls, is it going to be the executive, is it going to be a, a, the Department of Business Regulation or someone controlling by the governor, or will the legislature have oversight and, and some say over that process? I don't think that has been resolved.
Yeah, I mean, I, I've been told that they're very close so many times that it's like... <laughs> We're the all here in the it's same It's like thing, the boy right? who cried wolf, but yeah. I mean, if you think about the grand scheme of things, the fact that this is the one thing that they're trying to figure out, we're no longer debating, like, are we going to legalize marijuana? That seems marijuana? Home, right? Yeah, but I mean, I, I've, I said, I, I think they're closer than ever, but I also said that last year, so... <laughs> when, did you, when did you do your 12 on 12? How oh my that gosh, been? that was, um, it was like right before the pandemic, December 2019. And I think you said it was fairly close It was, then, right? you know, at the time, it was, that was right before Senate President Ruggiero finally came out in favor. So That's it was right. like... He was the holdup. Yeah, so it was like the governor was in favor, everyone seemed to be in favor, but the Senate leaders were sort of the holdouts. And then, I want to say a month after that was when... Um, uh, maybe I'm mixing up the dates, but anyway, the the Senate leaders eventually said, "Okay, we're on board," and then they actually passed marijuana legalization last year. Right. Um, it didn't, you know, pass the House, but um, the Senate President on the first day of the session this year, I think he said, "The General Assembly will legalize marijuana this year." If you're opposed to legalization, this has been the most genius <laughs> campaign to block it. <laughs> you have everyone say support it and say they're going to pass it, and then and it never not, happens. And then come up with nothing and not come out with a bill at all. <laughs> that so is funny. yeah, we'll we'll see. We're, I am eagerly awaiting the bill to post online. So, so. we all are. All right, let's do uh, outrages and or kudos. Uh, you have something that might not be exactly in that wheelhouse. <laughs> well, the, the kudo is to my colleague Tom Mooney, who's gone to Scotland to oh, follow uh, Nick Alverdian. <laughs> um, and, but I would like, there's also a message with, with that, and that is that I would like to go to the Azores to follow the burning ship. If we're gonna be having an international bridge to the burning ship full of uh, expensive cars that is now on Lamborghinis, fire. Lamborghinis, Porsches, Porsches, Bentleys, And, and for the people who haven't heard sea. the story, what was the deal, it just caught on fire? It caught on fire, Portugal? they abandoned ship, and but there's no, they don't know how what to do with the boat that's still on fire, because it's too big to just like tow it to port, I it's think. It's on its way to Rhode Island, right? You yeah, can yeah, it's coming story here. because yeah. it's, it's supposed to be going to Quantic. It's coming to Quonset, So we can yes. cut to the people in Quonset with little tears coming down their <laughs> eyes, and then you can fly over. They won't get their portions. And the Bentley owners who won't, whose, whose custom paint job is now ruined. Oh, devastating. My goodness. What do you have? A lot of noise and, and conversation and excitement about the congressional race, as there should be, right? You know, we hear, obviously, Alan Fung's come out. We've got Treasure Magazine are well into this. Plenty of other people. And there's been a lot of talk about backroom deals. There's been a lot of talk about who's going to run for governor and who's going to run for Congress. Is it Seth Magaziner's turn? Is it Alan Fung's turn? Enough of this. There's one job that the congressperson needs to focus on, and that's being an ambassador for the people to Washington and an ambassador from Washington to Rhode Island, to Congress District 2, Congressional District 2, and the state as a whole. That's job number one, and that's the only job. Politics is secondary to the actual role of a congressperson. It's nobody's turn. It's not about filling a particular demographic. Um, would it be nice to see a person of color? Absolutely. Would it be nice to see a female? Absolutely. But job number one is to be the ambassador. That is what the messaging needs to be about. That's where it needs to go. And that's what the winner will message, I believe. And good constituent service. <laughs> they learn Number that one, being quickly. that ambassador. Yep. Exactly. What do you have? Okay, I have a kudos. It is a week old, but I don't care. My colleague, Kate Walsh, last week did the most incredible job doing calm, live shots in the middle of a shootout in Providence. Yeah, like 168 rounds going by, While all of us by, were right? sleeping at 6 in the morning, she was calmly explaining. It sounded like a war zone behind her. She yeah. was a safe distance away, but hundreds of shots were being fired. No real sense at the time of where they were 
what direction they were going in or what exactly was going on or if the shots were coming from police or, you know, now we know that it was a suspect in a house and they were shooting at each other. But she did, like, what I think it's like a master class in journalism and TV journalism in particular and was so calm and informed all those people who were scared in that neighborhood and were watching TV knew what was going on because of Kate Walsh, so I have to give her a kudos. Did you get any behind the scenes? Like, was she in the moment? Was she nervous at the time or just doing her job? You know, I think she was just doing her job. She is, I mean, certainly, I'm sure she was She was stressed and she was worried, and, and she was, you know, they had positioned themselves. She was kind of behind the news car at times. But I think it wasn't until, at, you know, the adrenaline hits you, in, as you know, Jim, as a TV reporter, and I think it's not until afterwards that you kind of realize, oh, my gosh, like, this is the situation I was just in. But Yeah. No, kudos to her and, uh, and a lot of reporters out there. It was so dramatic to hear those gunfire. I mean, it really did sound like she was a war correspondent. It so. was incredible, yeah. Good for her. All right, folks, that is all the time we have. It's a quick 30 minutes. Bill and Patrick and Steph, thank you so much for joining us. Come back here next week. Um, uh, it's always lively here on Lively Experiment, and we will have everything that's covered when you come back. We'll be here to bring it to you as the Lively Experiment continues. We hope you have a great weekend. Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.